And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. As always, my name is Maggie, and today I am joined with author Zoe Sivak. Hi Zoe! Thank you so much for joining me today. Would you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh gosh, I contain multitudes. So my name is Zoe, and again, thank you so much for having me. I've had a wonderful time in all of the material I've spewed that has been unrecorded. So I guess about me, I live in Philadelphia. Well, I actually just moved. I live right outside of Philly now with my two cats. I write historical fiction from a restorative and diverse lens. And in my off time, I'm fully and gainly employed at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. But in the evening, I like to spend my time researching and writing and developing future work. And uh, this book is such a passion of mine. And it really does mean a lot to me that you have chosen to share it with your listeners. So thank you. Well, thank you. It was really an exceptional book. And I'm super excited to get to talk to you about it. Would you give us a synopsis of Mademoiselle Revolution? Sure. I have done this innumerable times and I still hate the question. I still can't do it well. So I would say that a kind of a quick, quick and dirty synopsis is this book follows a biracial young woman from what is now known as Haiti. At the time it was called Saint-Domingue. So it's a, you know, an island in the Caribbean that was a huge source of wealth because of its coffee and sugar plantations. Sylvie's father owns a coffee plantation and all of the enslaved people that come with that industry. As Sylvie starts to learn and recognize the innate and and insidious evils of owning people and her own tethers to that industry, she recognizes her own complicitness in this crime and how she can be both a victim of the system as a mixed-race woman and as somebody who is also a perpetrator of it. And so as she flees with her brother from the, what we now call the Haitian revolution, which was a revolution started by black people, she fled because had she stayed, we have a short story and I wanted to write a novel and she flees to Paris looking for safety and security as she, you know, even if she supported these people in their uprising, it was still very traumatic. And so she flees to France where unbeknownst to her, the French revolution is brewing. So she basically has to address potential opportunities for redemption, as well as more opportunities for mistakes and opportunities to lose her own head. So that's, a, I would say, is a, is a rough synopsis. It gets worse, I feel like, every time I try to describe the book. I can't seem to give people a clean two sentence. It just, again, it's just too complex. It's too much. To, to shorten into two sentences. That's what I'll tell myself. But maybe after a few more years, I'll get better at it. No, that was fantastic. We are not a two-sentence podcast, so that was totally in line <laughs> with what we're up to here. Perfect. Thank you. You're generous. Thank you. 
Um, so you've already touched on this already, but as an author, you have a pretty defined mission statement, for lack of a better word, exploring restorative yes. history and telling the stories of diverse people who have really been silenced by the dominant white supremacist, white supremacist narrative. And I was wondering right. if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that mission and that passion and how it really influences your actual writing process. Sure. Thank you. And it is a mission statement. And, and, and thank you for recognizing it as such, because I think that, I don't know, maybe it's a, maybe it's advice. I'm a debut author. I have no business giving advice, but it's I, I do think it's important to write with a mission. It doesn't always have to be one that's grand or one that's particularly, I don't know, nuanced or or it ha can have nothing to do with people of color or diversity or inclusion. It doesn't have to do with any of those things. But I think we should all have a mission, even if your mission is to make people laugh or to make people cry or to make people learn or whatever it may be, I think it's important to have a mission. And so my mission is restorative history. That's a restorative historical fiction. That's, that's how I see it. Because I want to, especially when the temptation is high, to just insert people of color in places you think they, they didn't exist or to just insert diversity for the sake of such. When in fact, the Western world, which is the history that I examine because that is my own history, you know, I, I just, I reject that. I think that Black people and diverse people from the LGBTQ spectrum and, and, you know, different genders and different races and ethnicities and religions, etc. We have always existed and we have always been present. I think that idea that this has always been a traditionally white space is a lie. That's not true. And so my goal is to, by using historical fiction, and historical events that are very present in our current consciousness, like the French Revolution, I was, I try to bring in, normally it's people of color, because that's how I identify, but to, to restore their significance, because they have always been significant. France, France's wealth, even though it, unfortunately, it did end up falling into a significant amount of debt, most of its wealth and power comes from Haiti. And it is only in 1945 that Haiti stopped paying reparations for the privilege of its own freedom. So I think it's important to understand just how powerful Black people were, even if maybe traditionally we wouldn't have characterized them as such. But a lot of these colonies and a lot of these empires and these cultural identities are built on Black bodies and not always Black bodies that are enslaved. I think that we also have all too often only seen Black people through a lens of property or as tragic victims. And while, yeah, a lot of them were brutalized and enslaved, there are a lot of people that profited off of the enslavement of their brethren, like Sylvie. That was very common. She is not unique in any way. And I wanted to show that being Black can be, still be messy and can still require growth. And it isn't always wasting away in a field, even if maybe, yeah, millions of people did spend their lives that way. I think it's important. So I wanted to show Black people as complex human beings, because that's what they are, and that it's not just victim or perpetrator or, you know, object of pity and object of admiration. I mean, people are complicated regardless of their social status or color. So I wanted to make sure at least in the, the instance of this time period and this environment, that I was able to fully appreciate that complexity. And I try to approach that with every book that I write. And I, I have that expectation for all of my characters. 
and characterizations of people of color. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that we're going to dive into a lot of the things that you just talked about in more detail as we go through the podcast, but I love so much how you framed the idea that there's two, I think, very dominant and very separate narratives of how the world works and how history works and that lacks so much nuance, mm -hmm. which are simultaneously right. that white people only existed in certain places and black people only existed in certain places, both in terms of physical right. geography, but then station and life experience. And there's just two stories that are allowed to happen. And I think that we are right. seeing this more and more as a conversation that happens, especially around media, and for some reason specifically about fantasy media, but that is a, a different conversation for a different day, maybe. And I spend so much of my time as a historian being like, no, no, you've been taught that there are two very specific things happening here, but the world is nuanced and real and complex, and it was in history as it was today. So thank you so much for sharing it and framing it for our listeners that way. I think that that's really helpful. Because I'm a historian, when I read historical fiction novels, I'm always curious about this part. Would you mind telling us just a little bit about your research process? And did you discover anything about the history of the French Revolution and of what's now known as Haiti today that surprised you? Or were you kind of expecting most of what you found? I think, so I think to explain how it came to be informs a lot of kind of what I learned it was more that I learned about it and then wrote about it as opposed to chose it and then learned about it. I, so the, the book as, as we understand it was pretty much born. Its seeds were planted probably years ago. I was, I was wrapping up my degree, woman, Mary. And if anyone has been to Colonial Williamsburg, that's where I went to school basically. So everything, not everything, but the, the places I like to go, we're all kind of 18th century. We're quite old, 18th, 17th century. And for example, I mean, I took my course on the French Revolution in a 17th century kitchen, you know, that it was, it, it's difficult to not see history as alive and as constant when you're in a place that is so old. I don't mean to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid of my, of my college, but it, it does, it really does inform the way that you see the world. And so, you know, I was taking classes, but I took a specific course and it, it was just, it was just, you know, it was American history. I think up to the Civil War, and which you know I really had no interest in it. I, I felt like I understood it well enough. I, I had less interest in, in American history. I prefer Western European, East Asian, and Mediterranean history personally. But I took it because I had I needed a credit or something or other. I spent a lot of time in in the history department, so it was fine. I will always find ways to enjoy it. But the person who taught it was actually normally a professor of Caribbean history, which of course is still American history. And that just kind of opened up my world in a way that she showed just how I, I cannot overstate the importance of Haiti in terms of the global status quo. So the, the, the reason that Haiti is so significant is because many uh, historians will argue, I will argue from a political, legal, I mean, from so many perspectives, that the Civil War and, and I explain this, I think, more articulately in the author's note, but the Civil War, the American Civil War, was basically became inevitable, which is the critical historical question, when was the Civil War inevitable, was when the Haitian Revolution began. And the reason that is, is because if you look at the dynamics of the United States and their belief system, it was that, you know, you have those that believed that Black people not only were not capable 
of, of civil political dif- discourse and, and basically navigating society in the way that they believe society should look. And then you had those that believe that, oh, like black people were capable of, of democracy and freedom and religion and things of, of, of civil society, right? And so when the Haitian Revolution began, it, in the minds of these two groups, basically those that were pro-slavery and those that were not, generally beyond behind the you know, geographical lines of North and South, as we're taught, the Haitian Revolution proved them both right. So if you were a Southerner who supported Black enslavement, well, the Haitian Revolution was, not to put a too fine a point on it, I mean, it was absolutely brutal. The things that previously enslaved people did to other white people were absolutely, I mean, I won't describe them in detail, it's not necessary to, but you can use your imagination of what are the types of things that you would want to do to a group of people that have humiliated you, dehumanized you. I'm not really interested in the morality of it or the fairness of it. I think that's useless. But imagine now if you were an abolitionist or at least someone who was against or opposed to it, that's the first black democracy, true democracy. Every person, every man, not person, every man could vote once this revolution was over and all men were free. So then you have both sides, one saying, look, I told you so, they could do it. They could have a successful revolution in the shadows of the American Revolution. It was was followed a very similar format. Look at that, they have, you know, a representative, you know, they have representatives, they have legislation, they they are the image of democracy. Whereas the other group looks at it and says, see, I told you so, they aren't capable of, of, of humanity right? Look at how barbaric, the savagery. So both saw what they wanted to see. And then those political ideas and fears became so entrenched as to make the Civil War inevitable. And we still see those reactions today. If you look at, say, BLM, you saw the same reaction. Whereas, look, civil protest, democracy, organized protest, you know, a beautiful representation of American ideals. When we see BLM and, and the, you know, subsequent movements that followed, while it, whereas other groups saw it and said, see, they're thugs, they're violent, they're destroying property, they're brutalizing communities. It's the same, it's the same, right? It's all cyclical. So the reason I, I tell that whole narrative is because that is where I was like, this is incredible. I must tell the world, right? Because writing a book is, I think, an inherently kind of, is an exercise in narcissism, I would say. It's like, well, I want to tell this story. I, you know, I have to share this. And so part of that was recognizing that Haiti was this incredibly significant moment in time that I, again, can't overstate just how important it was. So that was what started it. And so using that information, I just expanded on that and I researched more, read a lot of contemporary accounts, not only about life as an enslaved person, whereas Sylvie was not, learning more about the the systems of culture and colorism on the island, you know, the, the culture of the enfranchi or the free people of color and their ownership of people of color. I, I think that, you know, it was just a stepping stone to learning so much, so much more. And a lot of also, you know, contemporary accounts of brutality against people of color that I didn't put in the book because, again, I, I, I don't really quite see the point in, in using Black suffering for atmosphere. I think we all know that slavery is bad. 
I don't need to, to get into it too much. I, I try to use it in very specific for a very specific purpose. And, and hopefully that was clear when reading it. So yeah, so that I think was kind of the background of, of the book and, and how I wrote it and, and why I wrote it and the type of resources that I chose. I mean, like I said, I mean, it was a range from contemporary to really esoteric theses from students across, you know, I always end up on that part of Google where you're reading some random, you know, dissertation from five years ago. I, you know the drill. But yeah, so that, I mean, that, I would say, you know, that that's it. And, and it does help that I've been taking French for, for a long time, not fluent. Anyone who takes French will tell you it is impossible to become fluent in French unless you live there for 20 years. But I, you know, being a part of the culture in terms of, you know, always learning about it. I mean, I knew what it was to be French and, and the French Revolution. I mean, that was, was stuff that I just kind of learned organically through my own education. But I think specifically it was it was the Haitian Revolution, even though it was such a brief part of the book, it I think so fundamentally informs the way that Sylvie sees the world that I had to make sure that I did it justice. But I also knew that it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to stay, not only because Sylvie would have been brutalized and killed, most likely. Again, not interested in whether or not she deserved it. It's just sad, no matter how you look at it. But I wanted to write a longer book and B, I'm not a Haitian person. And I think that Whereas, of course, I had, you know, a sensitivity reader to make sure that it felt organic and it felt natural. In the end, Sylvie was Haitian with a lowercase h in the sense that she was not truly a part of what would become Haiti. And so I felt that it was appropriate. She probably saw herself more as a French person or at least a member of the French diaspora as opposed to Haiti as we see it now. So I felt like that was OK to be there for a brief amount of time. To, to set the stage and understand it and then move on. And so that's how I kind of treated it in a, in a research sense. And then again, just, you know, regarding the French Revolution, a lot of contemporary sources. And my, again, my, my approach was to make sure that I, re, I showed it in its full accuracy. And so I tried to really dig into just reading contemporary accounts of what people saw when they step outside. It was piles of people just stripped of their clothing. You know, it was... Anyway, I think that kind of addresses different questions, so I won't get into that too much. But yes, yeah, so that was kind of my research. It was just the, I try to read as much contemporary sources as I possibly can so that it feels authentic and sincere and not romanticized and not glorified, which is, I find, a very hard line to walk because I think it's easy to paint these revolutions as these glorious revolutions when at least personally, I don't see them in, in that way. I would say the Haitian Revolution is probably a, a, a more pure. It's like a titrated sense of democracy and inequality. And I think the French Revolution, not to say it was more complex, but it, it wasn't so straightforward, I would say. I think it's messier and it's hard not to compare them and for some folks to look a little less positive in comparison to, say, a Black democracy you know, when people are, you know, truly overthrowing the yoke of, of enslavement and truly fighting for freedom. When you see poor, they are still poor, but white people using the same language. And so I, I try to, I try to keep those, those lenses distinct. And I think that even in the type of materials that I could find, obviously you don't have a lot of contemporary materials on the Haitian revolution. A lot of it is coming through different lenses. So it just, you have, but you have to make them both feel just as real. 
which I think is is difficult. And I will I think I will try to end my the answer there. That was very that was a very winding answer. But I find it it's hard when people ask like, well, you know, how did you research? It's like it, it's it's a hard answer. Sometimes I find it's a hard question to answer. I know I was kind of mean to you there because I hate answering that question too. And it's like, well, in reality, in reality, it's like a lot of, it's a lot of me sitting on a computer or in an archive, digging through Google Scholar, finding those like very. Right. Fringe almost, you know, random letters or random, you know, newspaper article, you know, but it, it is a hard, it is a hard question to answer. And I think anybody that just like yourself, you know how hard it is to piece through stuff especially when you have to criticize who's writing it why are they writing it where is it coming from who is it for and obviously imbalances of material in just terms of scope so yeah so much of historical work is I think managing bias both in terms of the materials that you're looking at and then I think especially for me as a white historian managing the my own confirmation biases and trying to really sit there and systematically be like okay what do I as a human actually think what parts of this are being influenced by like the dominant structures that I've always been taught. And then how are all of that playing into how I'm viewing all of these materials? It's just hundreds of hours of thinking about a hundred word piece of newspaper article. No, a hundred percent. Yes. Yes. I agree. (laughs) I think to start zooming in a little bit, I want to start with Sylvie and then maybe zoom back out to some of this larger political context here. So Mademoiselle Revolution really follows our main character, Sylvie, as she takes kind of a physical and philosophical journey, starting the novel as somebody who is in a place of privilege and is kind of purposefully, not so purposefully ignoring some of the circumstances that got her to that place of privilege that she is to a place where she's in revolutionary France and has a much clearer vision for a new world that's about racial equity and restitution and gender equity and class equity. And I was wondering why it was important for you to really spend the first part of that novel showcasing who Sylvie was before she kind of awakened to those horrors. We're really shown that time in her life rather than being told, you know, Sylvie was once ignorant of the ways of the world and now she isn't. And this is where we're starting the story, if that makes sense. Right. I think I wanted to show it because, well, because it's also, it's good writing. It's good practice to do it that way. I think it's important to just, in terms of describing the craft of writing a novel, I think it's important to disclose. It's more interesting to show, but I think also because that's what interested me as a mixed race person, because I think a lot of people like me identify first as mixed and then secondarily as Black, depending on the space we're in. And so Haiti is interesting, and I'll try to answer this more more succinctly because I think it does deserve a more succinct answer. Haiti is fascinating, and part of the reason why it devolved into revolution was because of the way mixed race people were treated. So long story short, in the United States, if I were to have been born, my mother is white, but you know, obviously it would have been reversed. So if we were to imagine I would have been born in the United States, the the rule of thumb is that I am property when I am born because I take my mother's status is the way we would say her status. So let's say my mother were black, she would most definitely be an enslaved woman. So I would be born enslaved and I would most likely never be freed. Maybe by my parent, but it is by no means mandatory or expected. Most often it was just free, more free labor. It was a a, a very common term we'll use is it is self-perpetuating. It's not self-perpetuating, it is forced. So that's one way, that's one system. And that's why it took so long 
for black freedom. That's just an unfortunate objective truth. When you don't have a lot of free people of color who can read and write and have economic power, it's a lot harder to progress and to fight for your freedom, right? Full rights and full freedoms. Haiti is almost the opposite, though not on paper. On paper, they had the Code Noir. Many people may have heard of that in school as one of the first legal, I think it actually is the first legal document that itemizes and articulates and legislates race in such a pointed way. It was written in the 16th century, no, maybe six. Oh, that's not important. I used to know all of these things off the top of my head. It's been a while. But in Haiti, it's the opposite, though not on paper. And what I mean by that is that you have the Code Noir, and in the Code Noir, you get your status also from your mother. The difference in Haiti is that the culture is different. And that is why it is so important that you can't only look at, this goes back to research, you can't just look at documentation. You can't just look at the law because the law is not, the law is not, and maybe this is my, my JD speaking, but the law is not always representative of society. It simply represents, it can represent ideals. It can represent boundaries. It can represent historical context. It doesn't always represent what is. Sometimes it does. But in this case, it does not at all. It was the absolute expectation and norm that if you had children with your enslaved property, that those children would become free the moment they were born. While technically when they are born, they are your property, you immediately free them. That is what you did. That was the norm. And that was what Sylvie was. I don't want anyone to ever look at Sylvie and consider her or view her as special or unique or anything. None of those things. She is none of those things. She is a dime a dozen. And that is why they were able to have that revolution in the way and when they did is because they had this enormous class of incredibly wealthy free people of color because often those fathers would enrich those sons, send them to France. Again, there are black people in France because that's where all those black boys went to school. And then they would come back, fill, you know, their minds filled with, you know, Western constructs of, of, of education and politics and enlightenment thinking, all of these things, come home, father would give them their, you know, an income or inheritance or whatever, and then they would have developed their own plantation and their own enslaved people because whiteness was something to be achieved. And that is still very much true. Whiteness is not simply a color. It is, it is a state of being. It is a framework of thought. It is a political theory. It's a social theory. Whiteness is something that you can chase after. And they did so with clothing. They were extremely religious. They were very socially conservative and they owned a lot of people. And so in the beginning, Sylvie very much fits into that framework because she is normal. That is the status quo. She would have lived with her father. She would have married a man identical to herself in standing and, and cultural upbringing and would have gone on to be mistress of her own house and have more mixed race children to add to this you know, hierarchy. So that's Sylvie. I, uh, and so I, I didn't have to reinvent a wheel. I just, how many women do we see depicted in art? If you, and I look a lot at art history, which for shame, I did not mention. I use art history so much from a, for my research. It's almost, uh, it's almost always where I start. But how many beautiful women of color, you know, their hair wrapped with their sumptuary laws that, that, that dictate, dictated how they were supposed to dress to make sure that there was, you know, distinguishing them amongst, from other white people with their black slaves in tow. So yeah, so, you know, when creating Sylvie, it was actually very simple and on paper because she is exactly what so many other free women of color looked like and their origins were just like hers. And they probably had the same struggles.
but they perpetuated a system and they benefited off of it, but they were still victims because it is messy. Yeah, it's super messy. And I think too that Sylvie throughout the novel, I think starts, not starts, she does start to recognize the messiness of that. And I think that she really, she struggles a lot and really openly with the fact that she feels a huge weight of responsibility over the fact Mm -hmm. that she was perpetuating harm and that she was part of that power structure. So I was hoping you might talk a little bit about what you kind of dreamed readers would take away from Sylvie's journey to kind of learn to better manage that responsibility in a way that is ultimately more productive for her as an individual, but then also for the movement that she's a part of. Oh, 100%. And it's anti-racism. That word didn't become part of the common lexicon until maybe the 90s. But that's more or less the concept that Sylvie has settled upon, which is she there's a lot of self-loathing there's a lot of discomfort there's a lot of dissonance which i personally feel because i was raised by a white mother which is very different than if you were raised in a household where there was a black parent and i did not and so i had to learn my blackness and then i had to learn how to be anti-racist because just because i'm a woman of color doesn't excuse me excuse me from a system of white supremacy we all live in it and sylvie does too and so what I, I want people to learn is that she grows, right? She she recognizes her errors and her mistakes, and she's not sure if she can ever fully overcome them, but she knows that she can actively take a role or actively educate or or grow and try and promote progress for people of color, or at least for equality and equity as well as she can in the constructs of her society. So that meant, you know, speaking on the floor, which is historically accurate. They actually did have at the floor of the National Convention or whatever it was called at that time. They, they changed their name so many damn times. But it was basically they had a big speech where they were all arguing um, on whether or not to abolish slavery and the French, all of the French holdings. And they did actually pick, they picked, a, they have a white person, they had a black person, and they had a mixed race person. And they, ha- they ha- all described their experiences with enslavement, either, you know, in whatever way that meant and, and how abolishing slavery was a necessity. And so instead, I just I had Sylvie be the person of color to, to make that speech. But for her, that was the most active way that she could make amends and to heal not only personally, but I think. I think to show what it means to be in her instance, she, you know, she's not necessarily an ally because she is a woman of color, but what it means to be anti-racist is to actively participate in dismantling these structures. It's not just feeling the feelings, right? It's not just, it's not just saying that racism exists and that inequities exist and that, you know, she reads the books and she attends the talks and that's great. And that is a big part of it. Education, I think is one of the biggest steps one can take, but it, it requires active interaction with these organizations and with these institutions to make change and to be a proponent of change. And so that's where she feels whole. And that's how she feels from a lot of the trauma that she she didn't really know that she had was by standing in front of all of these white men and telling them how their inaction not only kills women and men, but it hurts them in such a profound and personal way, this inequity. And so, yeah, so, so that's what I want people to take away. And that, and that was one of the kind of the biggest learning curve that I went on while writing this during BLM was that I learned the language of anti-racism and that it is so much more than just knowing 
the 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 catchphrases right and and that's the big issue that sylvie comes across and something that i continue to come across you know with neoliberalism i'm wildly liberal i'm as snowflakey as it gets but my the issue is that we all use this language of wokeness just in the same way that in in revolutionary france they all had to use the language of patriotism all had to use the language of freedom and democracy and revolution and yet there were people across the ocean that, that that were enslaved and that they didn't they didn't free until the very end and they did and they did abolish slavery which napoleon immediately rectified at the beginning of his tenure as uh, as emperor or dictator that's a different discussion but that is what i want people to take away from is that you it is not simply talking the talk you have to walk the walk i suppose of anti-racism and so sylvie learns and that is part of i think her disillusionment with the establishment it's like everyone looks and behaves like you would think this shining utopia of like a enlightened society is and it's like they're using these words and i don't think they know what they mean she recognizes that she's not as educated as her peers but she's just like but i i know what enslavement looks like i may not have been enslaved but i know what it looks like and this is not what it is the the language the drama that they, that they bring to it all. I'm like, I understand your economic and uh, the economic disparities and, and you know, the, the classism and elitism and all of that. But she's like, you're using this language of freedom and enslavement and you're diluting the very real pain that you are directly causing. And, and, and so that's, I think, a big reason why she feels the need to step forward and kind of rectify that hypocrisy because she's like, I'm a hypocrite if I don't step forward. Going off of that, I think that there's so many lines and I get and I guess digging a little bit even even deeper into what you've already shared there's so many lines and moments in the novel where our characters are having conversations that feel both completely appropriate for the time and context that the novel is taking sure. place in but then they're also such I mean we've been talking about everything cyclical they're they're a direct tie-in to conversations that are happening about race that are happening about BLM that are happening today and it's like right. things like conversations about how reading and education aren't a substitute for actual tangible action. Things like saying over and over again that slavery is over in France doesn't make it actually true just true. to say something. Right. So I was wondering, how did you think specifically about creating that balance in dialogue and moments that does both fit that historical context, but that you knew was going to resonate heavily with those contemporary readers that are kind of engaging with the novel today? Right. I'm just a masterclass in writing. I think that's what it is. No, it's, it's because I, it's because I was having those conversations, right? It's because I was literally writing this. It's like, you can't make this stuff up. It sounds so, I don't know, it sounds almost cheesy, but I was literally editing this when the National Guard were coming in and they're like, I don't know, military grade vehicles coming down, you know, Walnut Market Street during the, you know, during the protest. I mean, it, it was impossible to not, I, I didn't have to make up any any connections it this it felt so sickeningly present you know when when looking at the things that the in, during the french revolution that that i felt like i was experiencing now you know i would step outside and there was protest sylvie stepped outside and there was protest sylvie felt a hypocrisy and a false allyship i felt hypocrisy and a false allyship sylvie would see all of these indicators of 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 support and of freedom, the, the cockades, right? The tricolors, that's what we would refer them to. They're just a little boutonnieres of, of the flag, you know, the, the wearing the patriotic clothing, the using the right language. I would see the signifiers, the, the blacked out image, the, the, the filters on your social media. 
the, you know, the sending the, you know, the, the posting quotes on your stories. We were experiencing the same thing because people are still the same. You know, people don't change. I don't, I don't mean that in the sense on an individual level. I mean, human being, we are humans and have been for about 300,000 years. We are more or less the same and always will be and will react similarly to similar problems. So it required no, I mean, of course it was active. It was my hands were not haunted, but it was, it, it was not a challenge to, to make sure those conversations were being had in the novel because those conversations were being had. It's not like people suddenly discovered hypocrisy in 2020, you know, that that's not how it happened people recognize inequity, even if the word, the language doesn't exist, the concepts do. So I just knew that I had to make sure that, you know, just Gaspar was having, you know, he was struggling personally. I, I think about him a lot in his struggle as being the white younger brother or older brother of, of, you know, of his sister and how uncomfortable that must have been the type of conversations he probably heard about her body and about her identity. And I wondered, did he say anything? Would he have been the type to have said something? He probably didn't when he was young. But when did he start? When did he start to use the language of, you don't speak about my sister this way, or that's not appropriate? Or did he exploit women of color for his own sexual gratification? I think about that too. I'm like, did he? We know his brother did. We know Edmond did. So it's, I just think about the conversations that do and do not happen on screen in the book and in real life. And I make sure that I treat people as people, regardless of what they're wearing or the language they're speaking or the year it takes place. That is such a frustration of mine is that just because something occurs in the past, suddenly people behave differently or they, or they feel different feelings just because they're wearing stays doesn't mean they don't feel pain or they don't recognize hypocrisy or narcissism or ego or ego or, or, or lying politicians. It's all the same. It's all the same. And to try to guilt it or to, to romanticize it because it's historical does such a disservice to those people. Just because they're dead doesn't mean they don't have dignity. And it doesn't mean that they didn't feel the same things that I felt wading through those crowds. So that's, I think that that's the best way I can answer that question is, it's just, it seemed it would have been willfully, I would have had to willfully not include those parallels because they are so present. You had the charismatic leader, you know, a totalitarian, you know, the, the fears of a totalitarian state, the, the, you know, it's just one was extremely to the left and one was extremely to the right. Ours was extremely to the right. But yet there were so many commonalities, you know, and I think it's funny when, you know, it's like, this is the liberal, you know, utopia. And yet people, I would say, actually, actually the right lift up the French Revolution. A lot of movements, you know, lift that up as true democracy. When to me, it was terror. Right. And to the French, it's terror, which is what's interesting. So, again, I, I think it's just very important to not try to see these movements through the political lens of now and just say it doesn't matter if they're talking about equality in revolutionary France and they're you know, abolishing slavery. They were brutalizing people in the street. It's it, it doesn't matter what language 
that you, you, you know, you're using in the background. It on paper, it was terrifying. And in real life, it was. And so people will talk just in the same way we talk now. So yeah, I think it comes back, circling back to the, your mission statement and the thread that's been going through this entire conversation. You craft characters who live rich, authentic, full, nuanced lives, and humans are humans, and we've kind of always been humans. So when you think about it from that lens, the same conversations are going to be happening because that's just how humans speak and interact with each other and the parts that we all have to wrestle with as we're kind of thinking about dismantling injustice. Right. I'm glad that you brought up Gaspard because he and his relationship with Sophie was one of the most compelling parts of the novel for me. He would say things and sometimes you were very much like, Gaspard, you're almost there. (laughs) You're so close. You're really missing the mark though, buddy. But but (laughs) you'd like, you'd look at him and you'd be like, oh, oh, like three, three more steps. You can do it. And Sylvie's so frustrated with him and so understandably frustrated with him so much of the time, but then they're siblings, right? And they've been close their entire lives because he is the one who views her as being a human, frankly, when Edmund doesn't. And you see that love between them. And it was, I don't know, I just, I, I loved so much their relationship with each other where... It just felt very human to me, I guess. It felt so indicative of everything that we're talking about because I think it would have been maybe a simpler or easy way out to say that Gaspard not understanding Sylvie's experiences would affect her relationship with him in a really negative way. But at the end of the day, that frustration doesn't negate the love that she has for him. Right. And that whole dynamic was really interesting to me. I don't even know if I have a question there anymore, or if I just wanted to say how no, much I, like, I loved that relationship. But if you want to talk about it a little bit, I'd be all ears. <laughs> well, I okay, what I will say, I'll say two things. The first thing is that, kind of going back to my last point, I, another piece of it is I never want to ascribe 21st century mentality onto people that lived in the 18th century. I, I think that's almost that's almost worse to 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 suddenly give these people the language and the concepts like sexuality and gender and and race. I do not want to ascribe my 21st century beliefs onto these people. Even if they could have had similar feelings, I can't just copy and paste. That's not historical fiction. That's just that's absurd. I, I think that hurts the movement more than anything. Rather than let well, let's dig into the messiness. Of, of the 18th century and try to find those commonalities rather than force them where they didn't exist. So that's part of it. So yeah, Gaspar would be, he would be an ally and an advocate, but he's still going to make mistakes because he is human. And I think that the reason they're so close is because, I mean, you can have, I mean, people have, you know, siblings that have different political beliefs that really just, I, you cannot wrap your head around it. Like what the hell happened to my little brother? Why is he like this? And yet, you love them and and you try to sympathize and you try to have these just you know these conversations and you hope that they grow and you hope that they mature and you hope that you know you come together more because that's how families are and just because one might have a different social status than you or even a different color that doesn't mean that you can't have those bonds or in Edmond's case they can simply highlight the disparities that exist you know I wanted to show these men, at least in the early parts of the novel, because those are the you know first people you really get to know well, I wanted to show that there could be so many different colors to these relationships and so many different colors of, of racism and misogynoir 
like for example Edmond's like that's easy everyone's like well he's a bad man because he's so obviously vulgar and disgusting and and racist right but then you have Julien who believes in his heart of hearts that he loves his daughter like he he loves her Gaspar truly believes he loves his sister and my question is do do they does Julien love his daughter that's a meaningful question I don't know if you could answer it I don't know if I could he he legally raped her mom because property can't consent and you know and sylvie probably toss and turns at night you know this is the man i know and love but did he hold her down did he brutalize her would that make it better would it make it worse i don't mean to to use such triggering language but that's i mean those are the things that i'm sure she would have thought about and that i thought about as i'm like did, did he do it in his younger years you know or did he have a daughter and suddenly oh, wow, you know, I, I really, I, I've seen the error of my ways. I'll still own people, but I'll love her. You know, it, I don't know, right? And, and people so many times equate the willingness to have sex with people of color with equality or with respect, and it's almost the opposite. You don't have to respect something to use it sexually. You know, you don't have to admire or to, or to know or to sex is power for a lot of people sex is force unfortunately for a lot of people and so i i think i think about that a lot and i know your original question was with gaspar but he fits within that spectrum of power and how it can look different sometimes it can be so obviously unequal like with Edmond, and then when juliet gets really gray because he's her dad and she loves him she really loves him but she's like how can can he love me? Can you really love me after what you did to my parent, after to my mother? I don't know if I can ever call you father. You know, that was something that she really struggled with. And then you have Gaspar, who on paper treats her like an equal and loves her and admires her and, and you know, picks on her, as, you know, lovingly as brothers do. But then you, he still grew up in the same, he grew up in the same household as Edmond. And he, you know, he might use all of this language, but I'm sure Sylvie still thinks, and I hope the reader still, you know, questions. I'm sure he has had his slip-ups. He is not immune to white supremacy. Nobody is. Sylvie isn't. So certainly Gaspar isn't. So it's, it's supposed to show a full, I think, spectrum of how three men who grew up in the exact, three white men with this identical amount of power and the almost identical experiences can have three very different perspectives on how they treat this woman. And I think that tortures her. I mean, I can't imagine how three to any given day, these three men will, she will have very different interactions. Julianne's always going to be slightly stilted and she's a bit performative because that's her father and it's still 18th century France. It's not going to be, you know, some families obviously might be more warm and fuzzy, but there's always going to be a little bit of distance. And, you know, she didn't take a direct hand in raising her, but she loves him and he loves her and uses pet names and all of these things. But with Edmond, it's going to be obviously tense. It's going to be charged in a way that's very uncomfortable. And then with Gaspar, it's like there's more comfort and there's more ease, but there's always that wondering. So I think, I guess that's the best way to address it is, is that's kind of the purpose of Gaspar is he's kind of serving that, the placeholder of, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum. And yeah, so I, I guess, I guess that's, yeah, I think I'll just end it there with, they are supposed to, it's a value scale. And again, how people can have the same experiences, but that's not an excuse.
that we we all have shared experiences and similar experiences but people still can identify right from wrong and we're all allowed mistakes but the egregiousness of some of these men's crimes can they be excused can they be forgiven and for sylvie she she's still struggling to forgive herself but she certainly will not forgive them and gaspar also i mean i i do secretly wonder like what was his life of you know what was he thinking because he he's just a white man i mean he's aware of that i mean he's aware that on paper he's no better than Edmond just because he drinks and and avoids the fields and avoids direct interaction I mean does that does that mean oh well then he's less of an owner of slaves I mean he had slaves in his name they all did slaves Sylvia everybody did everybody owns I don't say that explicitly but everybody had their own stake in black flesh and it's just where does the blame end and I don't think it ends anywhere. I think it's just how do you move forward after such a foundation? And you see how it ends for all of them. So That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think going off of some of that too, something that gives him such nuance in, relation, in his relationship to Sylvie, I think is also that intersection for Sylvie and how her experience as a woman and specifically as a biracial woman comes into all of these power plays. Because I think that's something that Gaspard makes me think about so much is, like you were saying, you know, on paper, he treats Sylvie like an equal. But then almost as a byproduct of that, it means that he's specifically ignoring or willfully misunderstanding the power relationships that have between the two of them. He He's he's the, ver- I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but thank you, you just said it. It's like, he's the, I don't see color. That's where he is on it. He just doesn't, because who you don't want to think about that, right? As her brother, like you don't want to see it. So keep going, but that's basically on that value scale of racism. He's the, I don't see color. We're all just like children of God, man. (laughs) No, it's so true. It's so true. And even at the very end, you know, when when they're talking about lease and Sylvie has to flat out say for him, freedom looks different in a dress. I don't judge lease for making these decisions too. And Lisa's is another white woman. So I feel like so much of the subtext of that conversation was, and because you're kind of in further this, the, the, one of those, I don't see color people, you really don't see me and my positionality within society and the power that you could have to genuinely help me even more than you do by just kind of treating me in our very small interpersonal relationship as an equal, so to speak. Uh, no, a hundred percent. Yeah. Yes. I have nothing to add. That was chef's kiss. <laughs> I was, it was just so interesting. It, uh, so much about this yeah. novel got me thinking. We're running so far over time. I'm so sorry. No, that, that, no, and it is. I love how you're acting like this is at all your fault. I am. So, it's been a while since I've done this, so I am just. Let's just, you know what? An hour per question. I'm just going to take up all of your time because I have a lot of feelings. And I just, I'm, you're being very generous, and I think all of your the issue, not the issue. Your questions are good. And when you have a good question, I, I I think about it more deeply and I'm going to give you this long-winded answer to try to arrive at what I think is the answer. But uh, please, I, I have nowhere to be. I'm not saying I, I'm not seeing Black Panther until tonight. So you get you have time. Okay, cool. I, I'm so glad you feel that way. These are my favorite interviews because I feel like we're having more of a conversation versus just me asking you a question. 
Okay, so we've we've spoken about so many, I think, different aspects of Sylvie's identity and how she is so much a nor you know, like the typical woman who is in her social context here. But something that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that Sylvie is queer. And she's in a, a woman-love-woman relationship that is beautiful and heartbreaking and wonderful and gave me all of the feelings throughout the novel with Corneli. And there's some tension kind of about the fact that she's in this WLW relationship in terms of societal expectations for women. But I mean, the drama of their relationship really is much more about the larger, larger political context of Robespierre's France versus the fact that they're two women in love. So I was wondering yep. how you thought about writing that love story, how some how that specific aspect of her identity played into some of the other things that we've talked about. And, and that choice to make it not be like, oh, it's bad that these two women are in love ver in society's view versus the fact that there's a lot going on in both of their lives. That, okay, so that goes back to, I, I, I guess I said it too soon, but it comes right back to the, I do not ascribe a 21st century mentality onto people from the 18th century. And this is where I kind of, it's not a problem, but I, I'm a bit of a pragmatist when it comes to sexuality. And like gender, sexuality can be overwhelmingly informed by culture, right? It is overwhelmingly defined by culture. That is not to say that there weren't gay people, of course there were, but the idea of exclusively, and I'm gonna use more in the academic sense, like homosexuality, so forgive me for using them that way. It does, I don't mean it to sound callous, but exclusive homosexuality, that wasn't a thing in people's minds. Your you did not have a sexual identity. That wasn't a thing. Your role as a person was to procreate. You were supposed to, you were, your role was as a wife. And then if you were a man, it was as a husband and you had children and continue. What you did outside of that was a lot murkier. People, of course, recognized that people had same-sex relationships. That wasn't really an issue unless it got in the way of your identity as a wife and as a husband. Of course it was frowned upon. I feel like that's, that's stating the obvious, but it was also, this was a fairly liberal time. The, the, you know, from a British English perspective, this was like Georgian Regency that, you know, that period between 1790 to 1850 throughout the world was fairly laissez-faire. It was, it was rather nuanced in that. You can look at the clothing. I mean, things were diaphanous, things were slinky. You know, everything was about, it was very homoerotic regarding men's fashion. The tightest pants, you know, really cinching it at the waist. We wanted to see men's figures in their most kind of erotic, rawest form. You know, we wanted, with women, at least in the evening, the boobs were out. If your nipple popped out, that was fine. Just, I mean, this was just how things were. So I, I think we, we have this idea of, of sexuality in the 21st century that people are, there's queer people, there's bi people, there's, there's straight people, that, you know, whatever. That, that is an invention of the modern world to delineate ourselves in that way. I know now it is very, there is a comfort sometimes in the label for some people, for some others, it's just queer and that works. So I like instead to just call, yes, Sylvia is in my own headcanon, she is bi because I am bi and this is own voices, but generally I would just use queer, right? And I like that you used queer because it's like, I, I'm not going to ascribe any more specific of a label on these people. 
because such a thing doesn't exist. They would not understand the a pride parade. He's uh, most men would be like, yeah, I've had a male prostitute perform fellatio on me. Uh, this does not change my identity. You know, that's not a you know not to be crass, but I mean, it's that doesn't change their identity as a person, sexually or otherwise. That is the the creation of a sexual identity is such a new modern construct. It wasn't developed until about the 19th century, latter half. And I personally, I like it. I like a queer identity. I like the community because it gives us more of a political, social movement, which is very useful, especially when they, you know, there was, you know, such a marked movement against people who were sexual deviants or, you know, quote unquote, and that was necessary. But before such a thing existed, I mean, it was just something that you did. It was just something that you did. And one of the best, I, I don't remember where I heard it, or maybe I made it up, I'm not sure, but it was this, this line that I, I like to use, is that queerness wasn't something that you were, it was something that you did. That is the best way to describe it. So, and, and so in, in practically sensing, you don't have to be queer, as in to perform queerness. You could simply not do it, be miserable, but it was something that if with enough guilt or legal ramifications, people could be controlled. But in this period, there was no interest in controlling it in that, in that way. It was only gauche if it was, they exclusively and publicly only, you know, performed with the same sex. That's a different discussion. But generally people were fluid because sexuality was a, pretty much an invention of the modern times. So all of that said, I was not interested in ascribing all of that onto Sylvie. She has a very complicated relationship with femininity and with women. And this is something I've discussed, I think, in another podcast, but I really appreciated it. It was that Sylvie has no positive female role models. She doesn't have any. And her relationship with femininity is that it can be used as a weapon. It can be used as a weakness. And she is more vulnerable to both because she is Black. So when she meets this woman who's beautiful and white and accomplished and lives in a position in society that Sylvie envies, and she's like, I want to get close to this woman. Her thought isn't, well, let me get close to this woman. I really admire her. It's, well, what do I have to offer to ingratiate myself? And so she uses her own sexuality and she uses her own attractiveness. And that's, and that's how she gets close. She doesn't know how to have a healthy female friendship because she doesn't have them. The only other women or women of color that were around her were owned and were subservient. She had no healthy, there was no healthy relationship with women. So that's why you don't see one. She does not have a healthy relationship with Cornelie, does not exist. So, so I guess that's it. If you, you know, she doesn't know how to have anything other than a healthy sexual relationship or a healthy friendship. So instead we have this weird toxic sexual one that eventually does grow into something healthier. And, and, and I like to think that they'll be together forever and they are, they will, that's canon. But, uh, but yeah, so I think that's the best way to address it is, is simply that, you know, she's queer in that what she does, I wouldn't say she's queer in what she is. And she uses her, you know, I think had Cornelie being a man, she would have done the same thing. So she, I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's the best way to address it. It, it I think Cornerly, it was, she, Cornerly had something that Sylvie wanted. And so she used the tools at her disposal to get it. But then it becomes this wonderful sapphic romance. And, and my, you know, my only, my only frustration is that unfortunately it does involve a man, but that's historically accurate. Fortunately, Robespierre does exist, you know, he, um, 
I'm sorry. I just went, sorry. I just went something, I went super, my gay ass went so, okay. Anyway, I think I, I, you know, it had to revolve around him to a degree, but I really tried and I hope people feel this way and I hope you feel this way, that it didn't define their relationship in a way that just distracted from the beauty of what they were able to develop between each other. You know what I mean? I'm hoping that was true. I hope that it wasn't just, oh, great, you know, this, you know, this, this, this love triangle and, you know, it's just, you know, this queer relationship is ruined because Robespierre is omnipresent all the time. And it, it doesn't feel like a genuine, you know, WW relationship because Robespierre is in the background. I hope that it still does feel that way. Even with all of the, you know, social commentary that I provided earlier, it still does feel sapphic and beautiful and complicated because I wanted it to be. Even with, you know, our short king in the background. <laughs> That's it. That's what I, that's In what the I'm background saying. is an omnipresent overlord who's just making a nuisance of himself. I have exactly one Literally question about him because I was like, I can't oh, not ask about Robespierre. Please. But yeah, I don't want to talk about him. He's trash. He's garbage. But he's there. He's I there. Have feelings about him actually. But go ahead. Thank you so much. When you were talking so much about the historical context of this novel, I was like, this is a leading question about queer history, and I love it. Because so much of what I talk about, as as a queer person myself, you know, so much of what I talk about, too, and the context of in my day job is our contemporary sensibility of sexuality, of sexual interactions, is heavily influenced by history. And in the Western world, specifically in the US and in the UK, specifically by 19th century Victorian sensibilities. And that is very specific, but it really influences the way that we- Yeah, but very true. And it it very much, I think, influences the way we talk about and think about queer relationships in the past. So I loved how you did it here because it felt so accurate. And it made my little gay heart beat. So Robespierre was there. And and he was... He was Robespierre everywhere. But... It's historical commentary. So Robespierre was, like, there. End of chapter one. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I don't mean to... No, no, no. But it's, it's so true. But I, I felt very strongly that it didn't take away from... Good. He didn't take away from their relationship. He was just, I think, kind of an extra complication and an extra nuance. And I initially had a question about female solidarity that I was going to ask you that I tossed, but I guess we're, we're coming back around to it because it came Sorry. up naturally, which is, it's all good, which is, my bad. Sylvie, Sylvie does have such a complicated relationship with the other woman in her life. And it's because of exactly all of the reasons that you said, mm-hmm. but I love the idea that with her character, she can have really complicated and messy and kind of problematic relationships with the other women in her life and still be a really staunch supporter of women's rights and still really believe and move and push that cause forward. And I think in contemporary feminist terminology, we can get really stuck on the idea of solidarity and solidarity can really help push the work forward. I loved Sylvie being a character who could have a messy personal life and a political life that still really pushes the idea that women should have equal rights forward simultaneously. Yes, because I have, have had very messy, problematic personal relationships that are not peak feminist. But again, we, we, we can't just snap our fingers and pretend that hundreds of years, thousands of years of Western constructs are just gone from our psyche. I think that's a lie. I think it's absurd. 
to, and to try to hold us personally as women accountable for that in our personal lives. What we're trying to do is to en masse shift the culture so that it becomes less imprinted on our psyche as we grow up. That's the, that's the job. That's the dream, right? So yes. So yes, you know, Sylvie personally is a mess. She, she does not have healthy female relationships because she's never seen them. The only woman that she grew up with, you know, in a close sense was her more or less mother, but not really, who was just a, a white woman who you know lived in the house and made sure she was fed and taken care of to the degree that her husband wanted her to and that was kind of it or women she saw who were black women who did her hair and maintained her wardrobe i mean that's i mean that's it so and then she was suddenly surrounded by women and of course in theory as she's starting to recognize that gender equity is important as long along with racial equity because she struggles to separate them because wouldn't anyone it's hard to you know when you're like equality it's not except except the blacks except the jews except except for the women it's been, you know nobody shouts out those caveats so it's she she moves with them together you know and 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 they are together and they're unified and they're in solidarity you know as she thinks about equity and equality all of those things aside though in practice she has no idea how to be a healthy keep forward thinking woman and so you know and that was where it becomes slightly messy because again um, you know the thing that keeps me up at night is the white savior but i but i also recognize that yes it's still even if there are people of color overwhelmingly it's white it is overwhelmingly white even if there are people of color so yeah, I can't magically make Sylvie all of a sudden this excellent, you know, student who's self-motivating and is able to just find all of these wonderful pieces. Of That's absurd, you know, and I'm not interested in doing that just because I'm like, I don't want to wait, That's ridiculous. You know, in practice, she's going to be surrounded by other very educated, politically minded women that are help guiding her. And so I'm trying to keep all of those things present and practical and messy and interspersed with lovely sapphic sex. And <laughs> so... I, I, yeah, I don't really know how else to, to, to address that other than saying that you're right and that I think it's important to, while we can espouse feminist ideals, you, you don't want to make your, especially women of color, it is not our responsibility as women or as authors or as characters to perfectly represent them in our, in our lives. Because that's not the goal of feminism. That's not the goal of my feminism. It's that, you know, what is it, the joke we always say? It's like, I support women's rights, but I also support women's wrongs. Isn't that the, but that is the goal. The goal is that we can make a mistake and we can have relationships that we would not want our friends to be in. If I were Sylvie's friend, I would not want her to be in some of these relationships. But the beauty of it is that she is not held to a higher standard because she is neither a woman or because she is black. That's, I think that's the goal is that we should all be allowed to make mistakes and they are not heightened or more heavily criticized because we are either a woman or because we are black. And that I think that's the point. And I think that's also so beautifully exemplified in the novel, circling back to Robespierre, because that's what he does. He makes her Sylvia. He puts her on this perfect pedestal and is like, you're going to be the person who speaks for the biracial woman of Haiti. You're going to be the person who speaks for the woman of France. You're going to be my figurehead queen, basically. And, yes. you know, for like a lack of a, of a better yeah. term, and he's, it's funny because he's in the novel a lot, but in terms of page time, he's more of just an omniscient 
presence that you feel versus right. the amount of time the characters actually spend He's talking actually with you. Yeah. yeah, or interacting with them. And we also an do see... Yeah, he's an idea. But then we also do see... I, I think that I maybe picked up on some of your complicated feelings about him in that we see through the time period of the novel his descent into violence and his yeah. loss of control. And we see, at least for Sylvie, where he starts as an idea and where he ends as an idea. So I was wondering what your philosophy was about crafting him mm-hmm. as a character, if maybe you could dive into some of those feelings. Because as much as we, we've been like joking about him, he is very present yeah. and he has a lot of power in the novel. Robespierre, like I think many figures, Marat as well, go through different periods in, in modern sense, in academia, in periods of admiration and, and decline. It really depends on where and when we are politically and socially as to how people feel about him. You could have made him, a, I could have met, you could have made him, I could have made him a victim because stripping away as much context as possible, he was one of many. He was, he was singularly loved in the way women lost their shit over this man. I cannot tell you, I know it sounds so strange, the way people lose their mind, the idea of someone glorifying a politician in that way. We, we do kind of personalize our, our politicians, but he was, he was bae. Like to, he was everything. Women would, were giving him their hair, sending undergarments, the strands of hair. He was beloved, right? But in, from an academic sense, and in terms of his politics, whether or not we admire him, I think, depends a lot on where and when we are. And if you strip everything away, he was one of many men, though he, like I said, singularly admired, but one of many men that shared very similar beliefs and they were in the Montenegro, the, the, the mountain, right? Because of where they sat in the, it, that's just literally why they, they sat very high up. So they were called the mountains. And so the Montenegro, and so many people were a part of that community. He partially, I think the reason he is so famous, not just because of, because he actually was famous at the time, but because he was the last man standing he i don't know how but the biggest question one of those big historical questions one of them are when did the civil war become inevitable and then my other one is at what point can we start to blame things on robespierre as a singular actor and that i think you'll get many different answers depending on who you talk to that's it so i also wasn't interested that's not true i do discuss blame in regards to him i do but that's not the main focus. I think regardless of how much responsibility, he had responsibility. And so that's why, you know, we have the discussions about, you know, what, you know, the, his illusions of power. And some of his quotes are absolutely wackadoo and, and very, you know, they're disconcerting. A lot of the stuff he says in the, I mean, I, I don't make up a lot of his, his dialogue. I really don't. I was shocked. That was actually something I learned. I forgot to mention. He is where the origins, it's so blasé, it sounds like it's satire. You have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That originated from him. That literally came from him. And it's right, that's, that baffled me. I thought that you think that that sounds so blasé and so silly. You can't imagine you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. The fuck, Frenchman, what? Isn't that crazy? But I hope the accent adds to the drama. But it, it's that's exactly how he would have said it and thought. I mean, he was, you, you know, this is just a consequence of revolution. There is another famous one. I love epi- epigraphs. I will use them in every book I ever write. I always will. But there's the one, and it's a favorite of mine. It says, I am still convinced. I don't know if this is perfect. There are two. The one is, 
I am still convinced that we could have had the same success or, or we could have, you know, reformed the country with just, you know, a few men and a f sending a few to the guillotine or something like that. We, we, we could have just killed a few and we would have been successful. I'm still convinced, which I think is, is probably accurate. So, yeah, so I, I think that Robespierre, I decided to go with that he is a man because I always come back at these are people and we have to treat them as people. He was not a god. I think part of it is, I don't get into this too much, it's suggested. I do think he, he did get very ill at a certain point towards the end of the revolution. And then there was a really significant character change. I think that he was very mentally ill. I think something happened. He had a very terrible fever because he looked absolutely insane at the Festival of the Supreme Being. It was just as insane then as we think it is now. People were like, what is, I just mouthed, what the fuck? Sorry, people can't know that. <laughs> But, you know, people were just at this. Everyone was like, you celebrate, go and celebrate. And everyone's like, what the hell is happening? It, he looked insane. He was already on the decline. So that's part of it. And then I think the other part of it is, you know, how much power do you think he had and, and all of that. So I had to make him appealing as a love interest. And he, you know, I had to make him appealing as a leader. And it's hard to do that in a novel. I, I think because on paper, he's weird. He was kind of short, uh, not intensely, but he was a little short. He had some pockmarking. I mean, everybody did. He had very, very light gray eyes. I describe them as almost colorless. I mean, his death mask, he had a very wide face. He looked very German. A lot of people wonder where he's from because his last name is not French. It, it, no one really knows. Where, he was very strange. He's a very mysterious figure. But, you know, he wasn't, he also had a, a rather high voice. Not high, high, but a tenor. Think Adam Levine, a tenor voice. And, and he kind of, he, soft, he spoke very softly when he was at the, you know, when he was doing his lectures and, and grand orations, he wasn't a very good speaker. So everyone is, just imagine all the men are just watching, the women are screaming, you know, themselves hoarse and everyone's watching while he's talking and it's just like, I don't know what they see in him. Just so confused. But he is the female gaze. That was what it was. And so I had to try to make, you know, he was appealing to Sylvie because he's this man who has obvious power and security and influence. He is desired which makes him desirable. And because he sees her as someone worth using, which I think was intoxicating. I don't quite remember the original question. You answered it. We were, we were just talking about your philosophy about, about like crafting okay. Robespierre as a character. And I think that you okay. totally, totally answered it I there. Did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a strange man. <laughs> he's just and in a very, yeah, he, he, he's from, yeah, he's from Ara. I love his brother. I have to shout out Gus. I, I, his name is Gus. Okay. That is what I call him. Cause I can't call him Augustin. Augustin. That's just a bit much. It just, that's literally some French. It's Augustin. Augustin. My God. I'm calling him Gus. And he is a precious boy. And also did not make this up. There is so little that I had to make up for this. That's that. And a lot of people, I remember one of my edit comments again, for people who want to see behind the curtain, there's the scene where he jumps from the Hotel de Ville, the city hall, and he shatters both of his legs. And I remember I got a comment where it was just like, this seems a little graphic. If, if this is real, okay, but I don't know if this is necessary. And I'm like, he did that. He tried to commit. I don't know if he was trying to commit suicide or he was trying to flee. But my baby jumped out. Of, I'm sorry. I love him a lot. He jumps no, out. No, he's the babyist. He, okay. I really, I, it's so funny. Because I, I don't think about this book anymore. It's done. It's over. It's on my shelf. I'm thinking about other characters. So it's now you're triggering me with love. But I, he, 
I just think he's so interesting. And I don't think people recognize all the, the information, the, the tie between him and Napoleon. No, I'm sorry, Napoleon. Don't need to say that with a French accent. Is so is 100% accurate. He was best friends, besties with Napoleon. Absolute besties. Because they were together in Italy. And uh, and he was just like, you're going to go places, my dude. He really... He, and he was right. He was um, right. We wish he was, he was but right. he was right. <laughs> wish you were, but you were. But yeah, so and that's the other thing. I don't think people think about, you know, Maximilian Robespierre's brother. But there were two Robespierre's wandering around. And, and I just, I thought that was originally... I was making this super messy and I was going to have him be in love with, I should not be sharing all this. I was going to have him be in love with Sylvie. That was originally the, the concept of uh, Sylvie and, and they were going to be engaged and all of that. And, and, but then it just kind of quickly, I realized I was like, something's not right here. This is too messy. And also why am I getting vibes? And, and he, sorry, I did the universal queer symbol of, of the limp hand. Okay. The, the, imagine the tank. And I realized that's what it was because he definitely gave me a bi king energy. And so I definitely rolled with it and it did make sense to me. And I was like, this is why this feels more organic anyway. So I have this whole rich backstory of, of him being madly in love with Gaspar and, and Gaspar just kind of using him to feel good about himself after the loss of leaves and, and feeling insecure in his place amongst all of this and seeing things get out of control, but being, you're, you know, you're up too high, being too big to fail. And so he kind of uses him to feel good, both physically and emotionally. And just, and I just, because Gaspar is trash. I love him, but Gaspar is trash. And yeah, I'm sorry. These are all of my, my big feelings. No, no, no. It's so good. It's, Gus has this very, in the book, it's very, it's a serious interaction, but with a little bit of space, it's also a little bit funny where he, he sort of knocks Sylvie down a peg because she's talking to him about the fact that they can never get engaged and stuff and she's not interested right. in that. And he kind of, and he almost looks at her and he's like, do you think you're special here that you're in love with, that you're in love with a woman? I got my own stuff going on. That doesn't mean that this wouldn't be politically advantageous. And it's a very serious moment in the book, but looking back on it, it makes I me laugh so much. It makes me laugh so much because he's like, you think you're the only one out here living some sort of star-crossed like, lovers fate? I'm busy. I'm busy. I have shit to do. I don't have fun. I don't have time to find a beard. I don't have time for this. I'm busy. No, that's a hundred percent. No, that's a hundred percent true. And actually, the where that whole stuff came from is he did famously have a Creole mistress, and so that was why. I, you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? Black women are up in it. We, <laughs> Maggie, you know, you. <laughs> But yeah, it was, you know, I didn't have to make this shit up. I did not. He had a, a, a famous Creole mistress. And that was where, you know, part of that came from is I was like, oh, you know, Sylvia will be the mistress. And then that's, you know, I can say canonically, yeah, that maybe that's where she fits in as well. Because they would have been seen together all the time. Because that's, that's just how I like to play things. I'm a bit of a purist. I really try to keep things as historically accurate. If I have the dates and I have the proof, I'm going to try to make it authentic. You know, I knew who would Robespierre in his kind of idolatry of, of Sylvie, who would he, he have chosen to, to make this painting? David, because he already had David. He was already doing the death of Marat. So, you know, I try to keep everything as authentic as possible, which can be frustrating for my editor, but it's, it's, it's me. This is what I'm doing. So, so yeah. We love, we love Gus. We love Gus. The really just troublesome queer men 
who who are having these beautiful, rich, full, dramatic lives behind the curtain. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about the book that you'd oh. like to talk about? I mean, I could do this all day, but we shouldn't. So I, I don't I don't think so. I mean, nothing that I, you know, I don't have a burning. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I think I think we got everything that I mean, the main tenants, we got the we got the black in there. We got the queer stuff. No, I mean, this is I mean, these are how they all got got to talk about the blackness. We talk about the queer stuff. We talk about how revolutionary France was actually absolutely shitty and should not be, you know, was not a success. I think that's it. I think that's it. Oh, well, you don't have to put this in or not. I just think it's just these little tidbits that I think are absolutely fascinating that I feel like if I don't say them out loud, nobody will fully appreciate my genius. But, but so, you know, the petite Philippe, that's what they called him. So little Philip, he is the, and Sylvie's his aunt in my canon, you know, because he's secretly the child of Gaspar, because of course, but petite Philippe, this real person and child of Lise, he goes on to found the Sorbonne, which is the Harvard of France. The Sorbonne is the Sorbonne, which I just think is absolutely brilliant. I mean, this child, he spent his first almost year of life in, in a prison cell with his mother, his father dead. You know, I just think that's all very dramatic. And I think I like to think Sylvie would not shut up about it. She's like, oh, that's my, yeah, that's my nephew. Yeah, he made the Sorbonne. Yeah, yeah, the Sorbonne. But, you know, I could just see her. I can just see it because she does not have a maternal bone in her body, which I hope was made evidently clear. But she... <laughs> But yeah, so I, I, I like to think that she would like to, she would, we, she would share that a lot. I also had to make sure I, I gave a shout out to the birthing chair because it's almost never shown, almost never shown in historical fiction and in period pieces. That is almost exclusively how women gave birth. And yet they never show them. Don't know why. Birthing chair. It would be this beautiful ornate. We have so many of them. Just imagine this gorgeous, your restoration hardwood you know, or hardware, you know, lounge chair where you're giving birth to your child and it's just, you're just bearing down. And we, we still, in some culture, you know, we still do that. Uh, it certainly is easier to get the baby out. I'm sorry. I, I like obstetrics and maternal health. That's my bit. It's certainly easier for the baby to come out, but it also increases risk of tearing because obviously baby can come too fast, but baby would come out, which, you know. So anyway, so I also have to shout out to the birthing chair because I think it's great. <laughs> So yeah, just my little historical bits and pieces that I think are are very exciting. And those are the things that fuel me. Yay, advancing the Black narrative, but also the Sorbonne and birthing chairs. When when I read the birthing chair, I was like, this author means business. She knows what's up. Because uh, you're right, it never, it, they're never in it, but they're so prevalent everywhere. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. I've worked in so many collections that are just birthing chairs as far as the freaking eye can see. And, yep. and, and, and yep. some of them are really beautiful yes. and some of them are kind of just yeah. horseshoe shaped pieces Basic. of wood, but they're nowhere. You're right. They're, they're nowhere. They, everyone wants to put mom in the fucking, or in the bed, the, the bloody sheets. And I'm like, yes, I'm sure that happened sometimes. But that's not, people use the chair because gravity, that's what you would do. Everyone from the queen to a maid, that's, that's how you would be giving birth. So I just, again, I, I try to, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I feel seen. Thank you for appreciating that. <laughs> It's, it's funny important. too because that's also the scene where you really discover that Sylvie does not have a maternal bone in her body because she oh. feels down and she's like, "What is happening? What is happening?" And I'm, they never talk about poop either. I'm like, "You think we suddenly stopped pooping? What do you? It's gonna smell like shit and blood and it's disgusting." And I'm like, "Lee's looks. You look terrible, honey. You have never looked worse. This is just. Why am I helping? This is not for me. 
you know, and but I, I wanted to show, you know, you have to have your obligatory historical fiction birth birthing scene. I, okay, I, if I could just my one side, because I work in maternal child health. This is what I do is what I love. I'm, it's going to be a big book at some point. I'm going to write something historically, historically about it. <laughs> and yeah, and, but, but I just, again, it's almost another piece of where I feel like we just don't like I don't know if it's because we don't like women. I don't know what it is, but we never show birth well and it's never shown accurately. It's always just, you know what I mean? The obligatory historical fiction birth scene where it's, you know, mom is screaming, she's in bed, you know, there's there's always a man instead of a midwife. It, it, it's just, it's never accurate. And then it's baby comes out and, you know, the sweaty brow and then it's, oh my Oh, there it is. I don't know. It just really bothers me. And so I, I think that was kind of my little middle finger. I'm like, I'm going to make it accurate and unpleasant. <laughs> and so that that's what I did. So thank you. Thank you for seeing it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, my friends. I think Zoe and I could probably talk literally all day. <laughs> so yes, I'm going to yes. I'm gonna wrap us up here. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Zoe, thank you so much. That was a great conversation. I hope you had a good time too. I did. I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I no, just realized good. that you were speaking to the audience when you were just like, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And I just said, in a small voice, I did. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. I love it. Well, I was speaking to you too. I hope everybody had a good time, an informative time. And then I think next week, Harmony and I are going to be back and we're going to be talking about some Christmas lesbian romance with mangoes and mistletoe. So stay oh. tuned for that episode, my friends. And I will talk to you all next week. Goodbye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website, Rebel Girls Book. Club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.